Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about a really amazing family of trees that's been around for a very long time. I'm, of course, talking about the family Magnoliaceae. Now, many of these trees will be very familiar to most of my listeners in one degree or another, but Magnoliaceae is a surprisingly large family with a lot of diversity spread around the globe, and they're not doing so well in many places. In fact, it is estimated that nearly half, upwards of 48% of magnolia species are threatened with extinction in the wild. So if we don't get our act together and start thinking about ways to conserve these trees, we stand to lose nearly half of all magnolias still alive on this planet. And that's where organizations like Botanical Gardens Conservation International come in, because through a team of colleagues and dedicated conservationists, they're working to assess the threats as well as understand what can be done to save these trees. And joining us to talk about this is an incredible team of scientists that are doing the work necessary to understand and help protect these wonderful, wonderful trees. Joining us from the Atlanta Botanical Garden is Dr. Emily Coffey and Jean Linsky. As you'll hear, we'll talk about all of the effort that goes into understanding the threats to an entire family of trees, as well as how we can make better efforts to prioritize conservation efforts and so much more. This is a really really inspiring conversation. So I don't want to keep you from it any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Coffey and Jean Linsky. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Emily Coffey and Jean Linsky, it is great to have you on the podcast. To Dr. Coffey, welcome back. To Jean, welcome for the first time. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about magnolias today, but let's start off by introducing yourselves. Who are you and what is it that you do? Yes, so thank you so much, Matt. I'm excited to be back on the program. And um, my name is Emily Coffey. I'm the Vice President of Conservation and Research at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. And I am the, the global lead for the Global Conservation Consortium for Magnolia. Woo-hoo. Yeah, and I'm uh, Jean Linsky, the coordinator of the Global Conservation Consortium for Magnolia, also based uh, with Atlanta Botanical Garden. Excellent. I can't speak highly enough about all of the efforts being done throughout all of the consortia and down to what's going on at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, one of my favorite institutions in the world. So thank you so much again for being here. But in the grand scheme of things, where did you all start to get interested in this idea of like plants and conservation? I mean, is this something that's always been a part of your lives or something that you kind of realize through education or career that, you know, plants need some help and why not it be us? Um, so this is Emily and I, I can say that I, I, one of those weird kids that grew up just absolutely, um, adoring plants. And I mean, I, I, you know, grew up in the eighties being told that I can change the world and make a difference. (laughs) And, uh, I think I took that too much to heart, um, and thought that that was really what I needed to do. And, um, I first was really interested in animals as a little kid. And then in my third grade, that's when I came across people who studied plants. And I said, wow, nobody cares about plants. I want to do that. And I had amazing parents that supported that and took me to, you know, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. So they took me to the Missouri Botanical Garden all of the time (laughs) in the St. Louis Zoo. And so I got to actually see what that looked like from a really early age. And so 
it just was sort of a natural progression. And the first job that I got in university was working as an intern at Missouri Botanical Garden. So I have always wanted to do this. And (laughs) I'm one of the really fortunate people who get to spend their life actually trying to save plants. That's awesome. It's not every day you hear about a third grader perspective (laughs) on the lack of caring for plants among the general public. Obviously, you're with good company right now, uh, but that's great. I can't say how awesome that trajectory is. And just it's so nice to see you actually living your truth. (laughs) (laughs) I I had good parents, so I'm really grateful for them. (laughs) Kudos to them. Um, Yeah, I came to plants a little bit later. Um, I think I was similar. I always really loved science and plants and animals and being outside with my family. And but it was really, I think, even towards third year of my undergrad in university, I had, I took a plant, I think it was sort of the basic plant biology course, and I had the most amazing TA. Um, hmm. I love to credit her for it. Her name is Linnea. Um, so very fitting. And <laughs> she was just the most enthusiastic and passionate person about plants that I had ever met to, to that time. And so oh. it was really exciting to, to have her. And so that, that was it. I was like, okay, plants are awesome. They're exciting. Uh, they need to be saved. And and so from that, I sort of went on to learn as much as I could and did lab work and did uh, work in herbaria and sort of figured that, yeah, conservation was more the route I wanted to go than working in a lab all the time. But from then on, yeah, it was plants and um, getting excited about them and hoping hoping to make other people excited about them too. That's wonderful. And uh, yeah. I think you're doing a great job of it. And what's you know, what could we say more than just like shout out to great mentors, great parents, or just people that really get you fired up. And that's a common theme for a lot of my guests is it usually takes the spark of someone that either encourages you, whether they like it or not, or really just shows you how passionate people can be about it. So, I mean, two people that are living careers that are, uh, you know, testaments to that. So that's awesome. But in the bigger context of things here, we're talking about global conservation consortia. And we've had people on in the past that have discussed it to one degree or another. But what is the idea behind a global conservation consortia? It sounds like a lot, you know, a lot on your plate, a lot of things to do, especially in today's day and age. But what does it all mean? And what is sort of the goals of these consortia? So the 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 idea and sort of the the background behind um, developing these consortia really came from amazing work that the Botanical Gardens Conservation International have been doing, and they have been doing additional projects that have worked on um, the global trees assessment and the global trees campaign. And what they were really finding is, you know, through those projects, there's a lot of work to categorize and catalog the world's trees to prioritize trees for species conservation action and really take direct conservation actions for those particular trees and for trees in general. And focusing on this, you know, zero tree extinction objective to to work towards. Hmm. But what they were finding is that, you know, more than 25% of all tree species are threatened with extinction. And we needed to really scale up conservation for some of these really target taxa. And what came out of these conversations and this idea was to develop this global conservation consortia for key taxa that had very high rates of threatened um, individuals. So a lot of times we have you know, more than 50% of the the individual or the, the taxa within the group are threatened with extinction. 
they may be very technically challenging to grow. So mm. we have, you know, exceptional species or species that are difficult to seed bank. And then we also have um, species that are difficult to manage. And finally, you know, when we're looking at things like how can we capacity build? How can we, you know, really focus on prioritization um, with in-country partners? And how can we sort of bring people together to empower networks, empower gardens and arboreta and researchers to work collectively towards one group? Um, and that's sort of how we came about these ideas. And Additionally, there's a lot of keystone species that have been chosen. And so magnolias, as you know, are um, charismatic. They're beautiful <laughs> trees. They have beautiful flowers um, and they're fairly well known. But we have more than 50% of magnolia species threatened with extinction and they uh. occur in global hotspots. And so that's part of the, the reason and you know um, strategy behind choosing magnolia. There are as I think you've had, you know, other consortia on, um, you know, we have oak that are also included, Acer, Rhododendron, um, Cycads. There's several other that are coming up also that are really focusing on some of these key strategies to try to prevent extinction of these um, target tree groups. Whew, yeah, and it seems like a lot because it is a lot. And if you spend any time in conservation, plants or animal, unfortunately plants more so, uh, you realize there's very little money, very little time to go around. But what is great about these consortia is it is a group effort and it's recognition that no single organization, person, group has what it takes to pull this off. And that's where the power of collaboration comes in. And anytime you can get collaboration in there, I'm all for it. But, you know, in terms of where you go from recognizing this and saying, we're going to do this. Um, you know, Gene, this was probably a good question for you because when Emily sent a list of like breakdowns, it said, Gene gets stuff done. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, as a representative for Atlanta Botanical Garden, I realize that you are a piece of this puzzle, but where do you fit in when it comes to looking at something like Magnoliaceae? I mean, they're charismatic, they're spread across the globe, but with 50% endangerment, that is a dismal number. So how... How do you start to get stuff done? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And it's it's a it's a big group of, you know, over 330 species. And we're looking at more and more that are described. I think a publication came out just yesterday or two oh. days ago of a new of a new species. Um, so Stop. I'm also slow down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And sort of wrangling with that. But yeah, it's a lot of there's so many people out there that are working on magnolias. And so part of some of my job is to to wrangle them, to get to know them and and find out what they're doing already and help them make connections maybe with gardens. So if they're in, in situ, like a park, for example, managing some species and they don't know about a garden that's not too far away that maybe has some propagation information or expertise, um, it's really about helping to, to contact them that way. And so, yeah, over the, the last year of, of being in COVID, um, and it's been an excellent time to be emailing a whole lot of people who are sitting at their desks able to email me back. I know um, you're there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know you're not out in the field right now, um, sadly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a big part of it is is really being sort of a global connector for people who are working on the ground in the field um, and helping them to gather the knowledge that they have. So yeah, on propagation or on uh, where the species is in the wild um, and get it, get that information sort of to other people and vice versa. And so we've been, yeah, hosting a lot of meetings 
both so globally sort of to introduce what this consortium is to the world and then at a more regional level to really break it down because yeah it's, it's overwhelming looking at 336 species um, figuring out what to do first um, but they are sort of generally confined to, to different regions so we can break that down and mm. have regional groups of people who are dealing with yeah similar you know geopolitical situations as well as like the habitats of the species and the threats that they're facing um, so really bringing them together to share that as well wow mm-hmm. and it definitely seems like when you start to peel away the layers of what this takes you, you like you said geopolitical differences just even thinking about that i'm getting sweaty a little bit of the like the level of detail and effort that must go into this but what is interesting and it kind of sounds to me like it's really about bringing people to the table and saying, what are you doing and how can we leverage that? It's not going in and saying, no, we figured it out. You need to follow this protocol to the letter of the law. Otherwise, you're not part of this. It sounds really like you're leveraging the strengths of different organizations and groups as best as they can commit. And really, that's all part of the networking process is just getting those people to start talking to each other. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm by no means a Bengali expert. I've learned I've learned more about magnolias in the last year than than I ever had before. Um, And so it's really realizing that uh, for sure I'm not the expert um, and there are people out there who are really, really good at what they do. Um, And it's just about, yeah, helping them to get that beyond sort of their own organization. And and there's things that they might know about for specific species that could be transferred to Mm. another species or, or that somebody hadn't even thought to try before for growing it or storing it or something like that. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, just bringing people to the table in that way is already a a task in and of itself. But once you start to get your head as a group wrapped around what we have, what's available, where the weaknesses are, I mean, where do you start to do sort of the big picture sort of strategy development uh, and and then start really using those differences and expertise to their fullest potential? How does that start to play out? Because, you know, getting people together and understanding what's going on at current is only the first step, right? (laughs) It really is that baseline, you know, we're in this this phase of developing baselines, developing, you know, networks, establishing and sort of fostering these experts to come together. The next steps are in many ways sort of the most exciting. Hmm. And I guess that's because I, I, I like to think big picture, um, but the next steps are thinking regionally because we can't, we do think globally. So the consortium is global, but, you know, we've broken the world sort of into these regions and thinking at a region, how can we actually form a network that and form work and, you know, write grants and develop projects that are actually going to impact systems and systems that like are specific to these magnolias. Many of the magnolias occur and have similar issues that they may be dealing with, with regard to, you know, habitat loss or, you know, pollinator loss or just rarity and how can we take an expert from Brazil that can then help us in Colombia with, you know, try these techniques, that sort of thing. And so really learning to leverage and giving people the platform to think larger and to support a greater, you know, a greater network is one thing that we're really excited about. And also we are looking, you know, big picture sort of across consortia developing conservation genetics working groups, cryopreservation working groups, and learning from other taxa and how can we collectively take knowledge that someone else may have about a different species and actually apply that to, you know, our rarest species. And so I think that 
that that network is the the beauty behind it all mm-hmm. but the big picture is how do we take those that group of people continue to get them to collaborate together and make really big impacts regionally and so i think that you know the work that gene does to to herd cats and get everybody in the same room and you know talking together has been really showing that we are actually getting people that are like, I had no idea that there was someone working, you know, on this species and they start to work together. And now they're not just looking at taxonomy. They're looking at genetics. They're looking Mm. at um, in-situ work. They're looking at cryopreservation. And so we're actually pulling together much more complex projects than we could have ever before without this. And so I think the big picture, it is really about taking the needs of all of the different species and trying to leverage expertise to address that species, uh, the needs for that particular species in a more holistic way and pulling in all those different experts and specialties to you know, make larger impacts. Um, because that is, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do, empower gardens, arboreta, universities, all of that to fill in these gaps and really connect together. What I like what you just outlined there is it kind of encompasses two big ideas that I've, you know, only recently started to fully comprehend in the conservation world is first and foremost, as my friend Jared likes to say, conservation and ecosystem management is really people management at the end of the day. (laughs) I mean, the amount of collaboration and coordination that needs to go on to even start getting in there. And what's great is, like Gene said, you know, you don't have to come in being an expert, the world expert on Magnoliaceae to make an impact here. You can manage people and leverage the expertise and, and realize that, again, it's not just on your shoulders, it's getting the right people in the right room together, which is the second part of realization is you start to have these ideas in your head, especially from an outsider that doesn't get to see the inner workings of this, like, oh, all botanical gardens and universities are talking to each other all the time. They're all on the same page. It's a really coordinated effort. And then you start to realize just how siloed people can get. And that's no fault of their own. It's just the workflow of your day in and day out. But here's where having a consortia is nice because it can take the time and effort of someone trying to search this out on the internet and say, no, here's a database, here's a group that have all signed on and here's where you can fit in here and you can fit in here. And you're getting a lot of people, I'm guessing, talking to each other as you just kind of hinted at there that (laughs) didn't realize what's going on but can really, really help each other. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had big examples sort of of bringing together gardens in the in the US and Canada, sort of just having people be able to present, say, you know, we we're storing these species, um, or we're working on these ones, or we haven't been able to propagate this species before, has somebody else done it? And I think I've also, yeah, seen examples, we have a, a South America regional meeting coming up. And one of our sort of Consortium steering committee members said she was uh, she was sharing the information with her students and and yeah somebody else said they had a Brazilian colleague that didn't know there was somebody else in Brazil um, and he's going to be giving a presentation so it's really excellent that in some countries where maybe there aren't uh, a huge number of people working on it um, but there are a few we're really excited to connect them for sure. Dan, just think of what comes out of those, even within the first couple of years of just comparing notes and data. And like you said, maybe unlocking a secret to a species that someone struggled with for so long. And what I also really love about the GCC sort of 
framework here is that it really, truly emphasizes this think global but act local. And you've mentioned that we're kind of subdividing this up into regions to empower specific regions to do what works best for them. And so in the context of Magnolia and endangerment, are you seeing areas of the world where A, sort of the endangerment is far more concentrated? Or B, these sort of gaps in our knowledge are far more concentrated. Is there specific regions that really are uh, feeling this a little bit more than others, so to speak? I think, yeah, yeah, we've seen, um, I mean, we've seen both really, like both examples of what you just said. So Magnolia are are concentrated from the very tip of southern Canada down through the neotropics to South America, with countries like Colombia being really high diversity areas, as well as in Southeast and Southeast Asia is a big, another big diversity mm. center with China and Vietnam being a huge uh, center of diversity as well. And there's cases in terms of our understanding of the species uh, through IUCN red list assessments, Colombia is an example where I think every single species in the country is assessed as threatened oh. in some level. So critically endangered, endangered or vulnerable. Whereas a lot of species in South and Southeast Asia are currently assessed as data deficient, um, like a high proportion of them, which just means that we don't have enough information to be able to classify those in a, in a different threat category, which doesn't mean they're not a, a threatened. They very well could be a threatened. Um, <laughs> you know, we hope that they're, they're least concerned, but um, what it's really telling us is that there's a huge opportunity to do a lot more uh, work in field surveys um, and understanding what their actual status is. Whereas in places like South America, Colombia, we have a pretty uh, good idea that these are highly threatened groups and that they're facing, um, you know, habitat clearance for development and agriculture. And um, and so there's, yeah, there's different issues going on in different parts of the world in terms of our, our knowledge um, and the threats that are going on as well. So, yeah, lots of work to do. <laughs> Yeah. One figure that, you know, we can often use is that there's this like two thirds of the species are single country endemics, which is, that's, that's crazy. You know, when you're thinking about the sort of some of those numbers and those hotspots that Jean had mentioned, you know, I mean, these, these are, there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of new species that are being developed, but with the red listing, you can then learn to prioritize. And Mm. that's something that I think is, you know, really important that we can add to the, the, the global work that's being done. Certainly. And, you know, prioritization is always something that has to factor in because we don't live in an ideal perfect world where again, we can get all the funding and human power we need to do this sort of stuff, but it is, intriguing to think about what is lacking, especially for a charismatic group, a widespread group like magnolias. I mean, there are most people can recognize a magnolia or at least have heard that before. But to think of the data deficiency we have for so many species, you know, it's it's alarming, but it's a, a case in time and time again, you see throughout the plant world is just especially since we started to downplay a lot of the natural history knowledge of this stuff. A lot of those single species studies, especially single site studies have gone to the wayside or are just penalized in the peer review process, unfortunately. But, you know, the other part of it, too, is like you said, when you hit these hyper diverse areas where there are are these single site endemics, a lot of times 
even before you get to the human aspect of this endangerment, these are just rare species. These are species that are one-offs, maybe a few mountaintops, maybe a valley or something like that, that even before humans enter into the picture. But then you add humans to the picture, and then it becomes a more complex issue. So you mentioned sort of prioritization is an important process in all of this, and I'm guessing that some threats to these species across the globe are going to be more pressing than others, things you can actually do more on the ground, direct impacts on. And so is there a process of sort of like prioritizing different threats to these species to try to tackle those things first? Or is it sort of just whatever comes online, wherever you have the people and the human power to address them, you just kind of jump on it? Well, so if we look at the 2016 thread list analysis that was done, we can look at the different kinds of like most pressing and significant factors that Magnolia AC are actually facing. And we see with that, you know, logging and wood harvesting is the number one threat, actually. And that's that sort of um, encompasses habitat destruction, et cetera. Mm. Um, and then we see a lot of impacts on non-timber crops and livestock farming and urban development. And so as we see these big picture sort of impacts, um, we know that we can start to to discuss, you know, some of this, you know, how do we deal with habitat loss and, and development and how can we learn um, from those potential stories and potential um, successes that other places may have, have been able to address with, you know, try to dealing with um, capacity building and community engagement. There are some really exciting and interesting projects that we know of the partners that are down in Colombia, uh, for example, um, with one of their rare magnolia species where the community has been brought in to sort of harvest um, or to, to incorporate magnolias into their coffee growing and then utilize actually the uh, magnolia, the, the, the seed pods um, as um, these stirs for chocolate, um, hot chocolate. And hmm. so there was a project that was done, um, funded by National Geographic, some of our partners down in Colombia that we're trying to incorporate magnolias into this community. So trying to get in community involvement and seeing, you know, additional projects like that, um, you know, we would love to support those sorts of expansion. But I think, you know, looking at the threats, it's quite difficult to always be able to say this worked in one community, it's going to work in another. And so mm. we are trying to, you know, get experts together to discuss that. And another issue is, of course, climate change that's impacting a lot of these populations. And back in 2016, that was quite low as the predicted threats. But as we're looking at you know, additional work that we've been doing. We know that climate change is going to become extremely impactful for a lot of these mountaintop um, species of magnolias and these really small population magnolias in which, you know, they only occur in certain valleys um, or, you know, that that's going to really impact. And we don't necessarily have the answers yet, but that's where we're hoping the network can help illuminate some potential ideas and how we can, you know, move forward together as a collective. Yeah, I mean, it gets heavy. <laughs> I'm sure there's definitely days that are easier than others. But I also get to see, or at least from that standpoint, you can see where there's some silver linings or some hopeful moments where you're finding out about these really innovative approaches, you know, involving community members and stuff like that. And that's also what's exciting is that, you know, the door seems to be open to whatever possibilities can present themselves. It's not this sort of imperialistic, no, we know how to do conservation, listen to us kind of deal, which, you know, I don't think historically has worked all that well. Um, so, you know, when 
someone comes to you with an idea or you're met with a new set of partners or you hear about something that's super exciting, obviously you want to have some data to drive this sort of stuff. So, you know, where do you start to tease apart or focus your energies in terms of like, okay, you heard about community involvement and planting these and using the seed pods to stir coffee and keeping them in this. How do you start to assess situations like that? Like we should be facilitating this or helping make this a reality or at least introducing this to others as a potential versus like, uh, I don't know about that one. Maybe that's not the best way of approaching it, that kind of thing. How do you start to split those? I think that every effort to conserve magnolia is a great effort. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, and I think that everyone's doing it a bit differently. And so it's great to hear. And I think, I mean, I think we can't, like you're saying, yeah, we can't say that it can only be done one way. And so I'm really excited. Yeah. When I hear, you know, somebody says, oh, we've been growing this at our university um, with a local community and they, they're growing them in their own nursery now and wow. they're planting them. And we say, that's, that's really awesome. And we say, well, maybe, you know, you've learned how to grow this thing really well. If you could help with a propagation protocol um, and we might help them to, you know, we supply some templates or like, yeah, sort of standardized formats to share that information with mm. people and say, how would you write a recipe? Um, <laughs> think of this plant as a cake and what's the recipe, you know, what are the ingredients? What materials do you need? What temperature or what was the weather like that day when you were planting it and watering it? And hmm. and I think having yeah, people, you know, think of you're telling someone who's maybe never grown this thing before. So yeah, everyone who's doing something for magnolia conservation, I think, has has something to share for somebody else and to think about what are the sort of basics of what they're doing? Like what knowledge do they have about the plant's status and where it is in the wild that might help contribute to updating its red list assessment or yeah, are they growing it? That's really great. Maybe they have some new technique of protecting the plant from being eaten by a cow or something <laughs> that, that, that hasn't come up yet, but that would be kind of exciting. Um, but, you know, so I think uh, just thinking about, yeah, how they can contribute to uh, the consortium, but also then, you know, if somebody comes with us with a project, maybe they need some help. Maybe they don't know how to do a certain thing um, mm. or they need some help, you know, reviewing an application for funding proposal that they've already found on their own or something like that. So I think there's, yeah, there's, there's merit really in every project and we're excited to support them. That's really exciting to hear because it sounds like you're really emphasizing putting the onus back into the community, making more than just the scientists, more than just the botanical gardens have a stake in all of this. And and like you said, leveraging and acknowledging the fact that people on the ground probably have the expertise that is desperately needed. So it sounds more like the consortium idea is about facilitating that and giving a framework to operate within to make it easier to communicate rather than it is going in and having these you know dictatorial sort of pointing figures, you over here, you over here, give me our data kind of <laughs> yeah it's certainly i mean they they know how to grow these plants they know where they are and for us to be able to help you know share that information um is exactly what the consortium is all about so bigger picture and sort of time frames here i mean you mentioned 2016 was kind of an important date but now it's you know we're what five years yeah five years i'd do some mental math there <laughs> removed that's crazy to me that that's been five years but you know, this is an ongoing process. And so, you know, from a consortium standpoint, big picture, are there like checkpoints along the way? I mean, where do you go once you sort of have a basis underway to start gauging success in any of this? 
So we actually have a work plan. Um, so we <laughs> <laughs> have right now a three-year work plan in which we have goals and deliverables that we're trying to reach within each year. Um, and this has been developed with our steering committee. Um, and those are individuals that are from the biodiversity hotspots for Magnolia globally. And so between Jean and myself and um, BGCI, Dan Crowley, who is the um, GCCM coordinator and our steering committee, we've developed this work plan that helps sort of steer and guide some of our, that big picture. What are these, you know, big goals that we're trying to hit? And part of that is this updated exit to gap analysis um, and red listing work that Jean has been leading and doing a fantastic job um, at trying to get data together for a new assessment because that back in 2016, that red list assessment um, list had 304 species and we have added wow. um, at this point, I believe Jean, it is uh, 29 species. Wow. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 And that's, that's, you know, five years and, and that doesn't include the paper that just came out a couple <laughs> days ago, you know, that, that we're constantly getting new species are being discovered and described. And so we do have goals and, you know, deliverables we're actually working towards that are collectively um, agreed upon and that will then eventually feed into that sort of five and 10 year plan mm. that we're ultimately working towards because this is really about, you know, these first few years as we're coming together, really gaining momentum, developing a solid, strong network, and then harnessing and, and leveraging that network. And, you know, I think it will, it's going to look different in five years than it does today, <laughs> because that's part of the nature of this and this work. And we want to be adaptive and we want to really be inclusive of everyone's ideas, as Jean was saying, you know, this is really about not us dictating. This is very much about um, hearing and listening and raising those people's voices in the community across from from universities, you know, down to the communities that these magnolias are actually um, native to. So. Totally. I mean, that's powerful stuff. Just within five years, the amount of work that's gotten done, which really kind of shows you proof is in the pudding, as they say, of how powerful collaboration and partnerships like this can really be with sort of an organizational framework helping them out. I mean, that to me is very exciting. And of course, it's early days and there's so much more to be done. No pressure. Uh, but I always <laughs> hate saying that to people that are working it. Anyway... <laughs> But in in what you've heard and in, in what you're hearing coming out of all of these different regions, are there certain ideas or projects that have really stood out to you so far? I mean, you mentioned sort of getting community members to plant these within coffee plantations to kind of help facilitate making money and an income while also conserving species at the same time. But are there any sort of conservation activities specifically that have stood out or just kind of made you go, oh, that's fun. Let's see where this could go. Yeah, I think... Um so one of the big things that all of the GCCs are focused on, and, and Magnolia is included, is to help sort of ex develop and expand um, ex situ collections. Um, mm. So these are collections that are in botanic gardens um, or even private collections. Or, And so what we mean by that is really um, in the case where perhaps a species is only in a few gardens, uh, we might want to help develop that into sort of a bigger collection that's genetically representative of the entire known in situ population. So I think 
one of the things that we're working on and that, that I think some of these meetings have really highlighted is where people have been collecting from and where they might in the future. Um, and so it's really interesting to hear somebody talking about how they've, oh, I've been to that population and we have a few in our yeah. garden now. And, and somebody else saying, oh, well, we haven't been to this other area yet. And so that's, that's really exciting. And I think will be um, something that we're building on um, as, as we go. So I think that that's, um, I think that's one of the really exciting things is actually sharing that data between the gardens about where they've been collecting and where they target want to target next and and ensuring that the collections are really genetically representative and strong and mm. truly can back up uh, the wild population in the way that botanic gardens should be doing. That's really cool. And yeah, the genetic component of this, I mean, ex situ conservation collections, living collections, so vital to this process. You've got to have those in tandem with habitat conservation and restoration. But to think of it going just beyond, well, we got one or two. It's it's saved. We're good. You know, this is where this idea of like, you know, last time Dr. Coffee was on, we talked about maternal lion tracking and just making sure you're representing a genetic selection of this population that can make these conservation efforts more effective, more powerful in the long run. And to hear different gardens kind of talk that way. I mean, I talk to a lot of people doing different kinds of conservation. It is always a little intimidating, but also very exciting to hear just the intimate knowledge people have about local populations and, and what, where was this before and have we had collections here? I mean, just, just to hear people talk that way about a, you know an area where you're maybe not familiar or a group you're not all that specific about uh, is, is really intense but really exciting at the same time. So I, I, I definitely can empathize with that sentiment. <laughs> so in the context of thinking about this from more of a species perspective, I realized that, again, there's more species being <laughs> described every year and that's its own set of challenges. But are there any you know, in terms of priorities, perhaps we can take it from that angle. Are there any particular species or like groups of species that really stand out as like, we have to hit these hard right now. Otherwise there might not be a future for these plants. Some of the work we're doing right now with what Emily mentioned in our gap analysis is to take a number of different factors of what's threatening the species and what we know about it. So we're really combining the data from red list assessments or from other assessments, knowing that these critically endangered species are really some of the ones, obviously, that we need to focus on. <laughs> um, but we're also able to include some of the, so that that takes into account some in situ information about the threats and, you know, a species range and you know, it's population size, if we know that. Um, but we're able to also really bring in information about the ex situ collections, as I mentioned. So from BGCI's plant search database, which is a database of species in ex situ collections around the world. So gardens mm. can submit what uh, species they have in their gardens. Um, and so from that, we can also understand the ex situ status of a lot of species. And there's a huge number of threatened species and critically endangered species uh, more specifically, that aren't actually found in any ex situ gardens oh. um, in the world, uh, which to some degree can make a lot of sense because they might be really, really small populations <laughs> or hard to find or something like that. But to our mind, those ones that are either in no collections at all or very few um, can sort of rise to the top um, as we begin to discuss with our regional partners about, um, about which species to focus on. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you think that all the low hanging fruit and botany 
pun intended, uh, has been done. People have been everywhere. We've known all the plants. And that when you get into stuff like this, you realize how not true that is. And even if they're known, like you said, they could be way up in a mountain where no one's gone to collect seeds or living material. And that comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah, I was just I was just emailed today about somebody in in Haiti wanting to go look for a critically endangered, possibly extinct species that I think is known from some really extreme mountain habitats. And so, yeah, you know, they would like to go out there and see what they can find and hopefully collect some wow. seed. And we're yeah, we're I'm excited to hear that. I hope, you know, I hope they can get there and, and do it safely and <laughs> yeah. um, hopefully find the tree. So, yeah. Yeah, and I would imagine too, you know, getting botanical gardens and local people to talking with with each other and understanding where the gaps are and where these, especially as these assessments come on board, be like, oh, X, Y, and Z species are critically endangered, and then you have a botanical garden like, oh, wait, let me check my records. Boom, we've had three of these growing there. I mean, that happens from time to time. I'm I'm sure, right? Yeah, certainly. And there's, I think it's it's also something we have to think about is that there can be wide ranging species that are were potentially con- considered least concern in the past. Um, and we've had some partners who said, well, actually, this species in Thailand, for example, is actually super rare. And mm. we think is, is you know, we have some new information or um, in this country is, is really rare. And yeah, exactly. They have some in their collections already, which is really great. And I think they've, they've made some more collections. But to have that more detailed country level uh, information is is you know, also brings up priorities for different gardens. And thinking about sort of that genetic diversity component too, with wide ranging species, uh, you know, something like a cucumber magnolia, which you can find in Florida, and then you can find up in New York, I would imagine from like a conservation genetics perspective, even if that species is considered least concerned today, things change. I mean, the passenger pigeon was one time least concern, and we don't have any more of them now. Thanks, people. Uh, But, you know, I would assume it's also important to make sure that you're kind of within a species representing sort of that genetic diversity across, you know, northern populations, southern populations, just to make sure safeguarding, right? It's following that meta collection, you know, format of really trying to ensure that your collections are, for your exit to collections, that they are genetically diverse enough to capture, you know, as much of that diversity across the species range. Because just like you said, yes, right now, okay, you know, we're dealing with the least concerned species, but with climatic change and, you know, sort of unknown future, um, you do have to be able to really um, protect that genetic diversity, especially when you're thinking about genotypes and making sure that, you know, those those genotypes across geographic ranges are really protected. Um, so I think that meta collections are a wonderful way to do that. And that is, you know, that that idea behind meta collections is that it's we're we're doing it with the GCCM with our species stewards and it's to ensure that not one garden has to hmm. be responsible for tens of thousands of individuals <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> and instead that you spread the load and you you know you have um, multiple organizations working together to carry the weight of many different species and with smaller collections and data, I will say, you know, at the end of the day, it's not something everybody gets super excited about, but (laughs) some of us are big data geeks. And, um, 
you know, the the data behind all of these species, that is so exciting. Yeah. And there are tools that are, you know, currently being developed to help with best um, defining how to deal with meta collections and how to consider, you know, doing pedigree tracking and um, breeding and within the collections. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really exciting. We're at this cusp of, you know, understanding and new um, tools that we can use to better create meta collections, better conserve genetic diversity. And I think that we kind of are, I've heard many other um, great conservationists recently speaking about, you know, that we're in a golden age of conservation and for plant conservation. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really true. I think we have a platform now that we haven't had in the past. And even though it's overwhelming and we look at the numbers and (laughs) we're scared by how much work we have to do, we also have, you know, through a global pandemic, we have been able to have meetings across the globe for wow. the GCCM, and we have projects on the ground that have were not there last year that are working, people working together that hadn't ever spoken before, and we did that in a pandemic. And so yeah, yeah. that means, you know, we there's so much <laughs> you can do as as conservationists. We can really work together, and this isn't us. This is the sure, this sure. is the network. This is everybody coming together and it's just i don't know i am not the the hopeless optimist despite the, <laughs> despite the fact that uh, i know the numbers and the data but right. i think at the end of the day yeah it's 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 positive there's a lot of positive but think you know it is so easy to get caught up in what still needs to be done but if there's one thing i've learned through grad school and science is that you need to celebrate the victories when you have them cuz no one else is going to do that for you and is no matter what you can't underemphasize the amount of effort that's already going in to get you to where you're at right now that database the tools the networking i mean so much of that really difficult groundwork has already been laid And it's all to benefit groups of species. And now you know you've got team members and you have a framework in place. And as you start to build stronger and stronger partnerships, I mean, these things only evolve. And, and, you know, again, that that work is spread out. It's not on one set of people's shoulders or one person in particular. So, I mean, kudos. I can't emphasize how exciting it is to be at this point right now, let alone where you're going to be in the next five to 10 years with all of this. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) So with that in mind, if people listening are fired up and want to maybe learn more or even get involved, if they have some knowledge about a a species that maybe no one's really worked with in all that much detail, I mean, where do they go looking for these resources and how can they start kind of figuring out where they could maybe insert themselves? Well, we have uh, right now we're working uh, we're working with BGCI um, on a new website for the GCCM. Um, and the other consortia are having their websites as well. Um, so that will really become a great big hub of everything that we're working on, uh, resources on yeah, propagation, um, the results of our gap analysis, uh, directing people to information about who's working on what species and, and how they can get involved. Um, and so that's, um, you know, coming up really soon. But right now, yeah, we have, um, we have information on the Atlanta Botanical Garden website they can go, they can look up the GCCM there and and find out, uh, see recordings from our previous meetings and, nice. and my contact information and Emily's is there as well for them to, to get involved. And um, we also have a newsletter um, that's going out uh, twice a year right now. So please, yeah, sign up for that if you're interested to hear about what we're doing <laughs> as well. Awesome. Well, I'm going to have you send me those links in an email so I can post them and save everyone the trouble of having to find them themselves. 
Uh, but I think I speak for everyone listening when I say thank you both so much for telling us about this. And thank you both so much for all the effort that you personally have put in, but also, you know, your colleagues as well. This is a shout out to everyone involved in any of the consortia, you know, not just Magnolias, BGCI, everyone's doing such important work for plants. And it's about damn time we do some important work for plants because I think a lot of conservation, and you could correct me if I'm off base here, but a lot of conservation efforts would benefit from a plant-based focus, would they not? Of course. You're talking to an ecologist. Yes, definitely. (laughs) You hear that? An ecologist, someone that appreciates all life, says plants are pretty important. They're the most important. They are fundamental. Awesome. Well, again, thank you both so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedules to talk with us. And I can't wait to see what happens outside of a global pandemic, how much work and amazing stuff you all can do. So keep it up and keep in touch. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Of course. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, go Magnolias. (laughs) Cheers. Bye. All right, that does it for this episode. What an inspirational team, and I can't applaud their efforts enough. As always, all of the relevant links for this episode, as well as every other episode, can be found over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Don't worry about writing these things down. You can just head there once you've listened to the episode to find out more about each topic. I thank Dr. Coffey and Jean for taking time out of their busy, busy schedules to talk with us, and I think I speak for everyone listening when I say keep it up, please. If you're enjoying conversations like this and you want to make sure they can continue, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash plants, where you can get a ton of kickbacks, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. Speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to the two latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Jeremy and Brandon. Both of them signed up over at Patreon at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of the possible kickbacks you can get over there, and they're helping keep the show up and running. So thank you both of them. And once again, go check out those kickbacks. You can also pick up my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, wherever books are sold. You can also pick up merch at our Teespring store. And those links, like all of the other links, are in the show notes for each episode. So just once again, head over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed because each and every week I get to have incredible conversations like this and you don't want to miss out on any of them. So stay tuned. But otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.